Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Henry, and this is Brexit Memes, the Guardian podcast that boldly holds its nose and dives headlong into the ever more rancid waters of Brexit, so you don't have to. Well, minutes before we recorded this, Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson was declared the next Prime Minister of Britain. He will take office in the next 24 hours after Theresa May, his predecessor, has taken her final questions in the House and handed in her resignation to the Queen at Buckingham Palace. Johnson said he aimed to deliver Brexit, unite the party, defeat Jeremy Corbyn and energise the country, which, if you put it together, spells dude. Not sure whether that's promising or not, but anyway, an awful lot has already been said about Johnson. And although one can be sure of very little these days, one thing we can safely say without fear of contradiction is that a great deal more undoubtedly will be said about him. But we're concerned here with what his arrival in number 10 Downing Street might mean for Brexit. Will all those barnstorming columns be able to be translated into something resembling an actual policy? Now, Johnson has pledged to carry out a wholesale renegotiation of Theresa May's withdrawal agreement with the EU27. He said he will get rid of the Northern Ireland backstop in its entirety. Merely tweaking it won't be enough, he's warned. And he has promised to take Britain out of the EU with or without a deal, do or die, on the Brexit deadline of the 31st of October. What's more, he's refused to rule out suspending Parliament in order to do so. Unfortunately, Parliament has rejected Theresa May's Brexit deal and refused to countenance a no-deal exit. And the EU has consistently said that that withdrawal agreement is not open for renegotiation. So, impasse. However, brimming with an unshakable belief in his own brilliance, scornful of anything as inconvenient as actual reality, Johnson continues to blithely insist that all that's really needed to pull off this whole jolly Brexit caper is a good dose of can-do spirit and a sense of mission. He argues that if we as a race were capable of landing on the moon back in the 1960s, in the early years of the 21st century, it's surely not beyond our wit to find a high-tech solution to the pesky problem of the border across the island of Ireland. So, what does a Boris premiership mean for the Brexit project? And where will it go next? With me are three people better qualified than most to answer that burning question, namely Sonia Soda, Chief Leader Writer on The Observer and Deputy Opinion Editor at The Guardian, Joe Owen of the Institute for Government and The Guardian's Brussels correspondent, Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to all of you. 
Um, Joe, before we get onto the sort of juicy personality stuff, let's get the sort of process practicalities out of the way first, shall we? Because they're really what's going to constrain the new prime minister, the immovable constraints that he's going to have to work with over the next few months. Now, parliament goes into recess pretty much instantly, doesn't it? Then there's going to be the party conference season and there's that looming Brexit deadline of the 31st of October. Now, Johnson has promised that Britain will leave the EU do or die, as he said, by that date. But even leaving aside the politics, which we'll get into in a bit, the timetable for getting anything meaningful done is really extremely tight, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, ridiculously so. So the Boris Johnson's kind of preferred option, remember, is to leave with a deal. He has said that leaving without a deal is a million to one against if you believe what he's been uh, what he's been saying through the the hustings so what do you have to believe to believe that that is actually possible i mean there will be i think from um today less than 25 parliamentary sitting days until the 31st of october when you take into account recess and the mp's mm. holidays um in order to even make the most of that, so even if Boris Johnson could introduce a new bill and a new um, a new deal into Parliament the first day they get back from mm. summer, they would have something like t- just over 20 parliamentary sitting days, which is less than the legislation required in past EU treaties. It's much tighter on time. It's going to be much more fraught, much more constitutionally important. So there the timeline is really, really small. And that assumes that he returns from the summer with a deal. Now, Mm. the EU have said time and time again they're not up for renegotiating. They're actually pretty busy themselves, as I'm sure Mm. Jennifer will say, working out what the new European Commission looks like, Mm. what their new top team looks like. So to believe that Boris Johnson is able to leave um, the, and lead the UK out of the European Union on the 31st of October, there are quite a lot of heroic assumptions that you would need to make. OK, right. So, um, Sonia, he's up against it practically, clearly. Uh, the politics look pretty tough as well, don't they, frankly? I mean, he's embarking on his premiership with a majority that looks looks mm-hmm. vanishingly thin and might well disappear mm. altogether quite soon, with a sort of open rebellion in his own camp, backed, backed by some fairly heavyweight mm. figures from the outgoing cabinet. I mean, it's not the most solid base from which to embark on something as complex and momentous as completing Britain's extraction from the EU, is it really? No, I think that's right. And I think actually the politics that he faces are even more thorny um, than those of Theresa May. Um, The working majority that uh, Boris Johnson's got to play with has gone down. It's now only two as of uh, this morning. So as soon as you start to get conservative moderates peeling away, as many of them have indicated that they may well do if he tries to take Britain out um, in in a a no-deal scenario, um, he starts to lose loses his working majority. And that's not even taking into account... I mean, it looks fairly certain that the um, support and confidence agreement that Theresa May's got with the DUP would uh, continue under Mm. a Boris Johnson premiership. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get some confirmation of that today or tomorrow. But, um, yeah, it's it's, it's a very, very sort of fine, thin line he's got to uh, walk. And so that's why I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see a bit of a shift in his tone. Um, You know... 
up, right up till this point, it's been about winning. It's been about winning the maximum number of Tory members that he can in order to become prime minister. And for that, he wanted to really position himself as the do or die candidate. Mm. We're leaving on October the 31st, whatever happens. He's going to face reality now and he's got to keep his party together in the same way that Theresa May did. Um, and there just isn't enough, there aren't enough Labour MPs that he can take with him uh, to make up for the Tory mm. moderates that he, that might, he might lose. lose. So I think, you know, it's very hard to see how he doesn't shift his tone slightly because he simply has not got the majority to support it. Mm. And it doesn't look like he's going to be going for a very early general election, i.e. before the summer. I'd be very surprised if that happened too. I think there'd be a lot of Conservative MPs who wouldn't particularly thank him for that. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. OK, um, well, yeah, he's clearly going to have to shift his tone. Will it be enough, I suppose, is the question. Um, Jennifer, there have um, been a lot of rumours in various parts of the British press uh, over the last couple of weeks about the EU27 kind of being keen to mark this moment of a, a, you know, a change of personnel at number 10 to sort of reset the relationship and make some concessions and come up with a, a new plan for a new prime minister, if you like. I mean, how seriously should we take that? Is it, is it wishful thinking? Well, if if not wishful thinking, then perhaps wishful spinning, or at least a certain misunderstanding of the of what the withdrawal agreement means in the first place. Because we've we've seen various reports of a, a secret plan of compromise meetings with with EU uh, delegations and uh, and people close to Boris Johnson. But yet the reality is, really, for the EU, nothing at all has changed. We've just seen within within minutes of um, of Boris Johnson being named as new Conservative Party leader, Michel Barnier came out with a a quote pretty much summing up that the withdrawal agreement remained there to be ratified. The EU was willing to work on the political declaration on the future relationship that could be tweaked and that could be renegotiated with a future prime minister. But they're really not going to compromise on the on the backstop, the the issue that's been the, the bugbear for, for Eurosceptics for so long. And and I think this idea that, that suddenly the Irish were moving closer towards a compromise because Simon Coveney wrote at the weekend that um, the EU would like a, an agreement that meant the backstop would no longer be required. Well, that's really been the whole point of the withdrawal agreement. That's what, um, that's what the Irish and the EU position has been all along. So I think there's a certain amount of either misreading willful or otherwise as to whether that really makes a compromise. So lots of rumours flying around, but I'm afraid the plain vanilla truth is we come back to the fact that the EU position remains as it ever was. And it hasn't changed. Absolutely. OK, um, Joe, um, another uh, uh, um, obstacle that uh, Johnson is likely to confront quite soon over the last few weeks um, Parliament hasn't been inactive, has it, on, on this sort of threat of a, of a deal or no or pledge, I suppose, that uh, 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 the Brexiter camp would call it, of a deal or no deal exit. There have been a string of amendments and, and other votes in the Lords and the Commons, but aimed essentially at trying to prevent the new Prime Minister precisely from suspending Parliament in order to pursue uh, any kind of no deal Brexit. Now, firstly, have they worked? Is it still possible? Would it still be possible for Boris Johnson to prorogue Parliament if he wanted to? If push comes to shove, will MPs be able to avert a no deal? Um, because, no, I mean, no deal, I mean, it's important to remember, no deal is still the default option, isn't it? I mean, something has to be done in order to prevent it. Yeah, that's right. International law says the UK is leaving the EU on the 31st of October. So mm. unless either the two sides agree and ratify a deal or they agree an extension to the Article 50 period, we end up with no deal. It is the fallback. It's what happens if we can't agree anything mm. else. 
on the, the the point about prorogation, I think you know the first point to make is uh, prime ministers usually prorogue parliament every year. It's done at the end of a parliamentary session. You take five days off, come back, have a Queen's mm. speech. So prorogation in and of itself is not uncommon. But what we were talking about here and what the debate has been about is do you basically prorogue parliament, shut it down, lock the doors and then and, just and let the let, clock tick down? Exactly. Just fall over the 31st of October finish line without the opportunity for parliament to, to, to have their voice heard and to try and do something about it. So last week, MPs passed an amendment to a piece of legislation about Northern Ireland, which in effect tried to get round this and has put in law that the UK government will need to make a statement about Northern Ireland at various points over so the autumn. So nothing particularly to do with Brexit? Right? Nothing particularly okay. to do with Brexit. But what it does ensure is that Parliament has to be sitting for certain periods over the autumn. Now, Boris Johnson can still prorogue in the areas where it doesn't need to, but this was a kind of safety clause to say, you cannot shut us down on the 2nd of September and not invite us back until this, you know, the 1st of November. Um, so prorogation is still possible, but MPs have made sure that they will have opportunities to make their voice clear. Now, what can they do with that voice? Can they actually stop no deal? This is the really interesting question, and I think there are two sides to it, right? Mm. There's the kind of procedural side. Right. So can they actually, have they got hard levers? And then there's the political side around what pressure they can apply. So procedurally, it is quite difficult still for Parliament to stop no deal. They need hooks to hang votes off. They need to mm. take control of the order paper and they need a majority in order to compel the government to do something. This was very tight in the run into March. Mm. And I think people say the parliamentary arithmetic hasn't changed. But in some cases, you know, the rise of the Brexit party, the results in the European Parliament elections may have MPs thinking again. So making I'd, different calculations. Exactly. Yeah. It was one thing for them to get a good majority against shutting Parliament out of the process altogether. But that doesn't necessarily convert into all of those people also voting to stop no deal. Particularly timing is important here because um, Boris Johnson's always said that no deal is the UK's best threat at the negotiating table to get a better deal. So I'm sure a lot of MPs will be nervous about shutting down no deal so quickly before the Prime Minister's had a chance to try and negotiate in Brussels. But then just finally, you know, the point I'd make around, even though there might not be these kind of procedural routes... Mm. MPs can still vote no confidence in the Prime Minister. They can still bring the government down. And while still, you know, there's questions about whether they have the time to call an election and run an election, replace, et cetera, et cetera, the political pressure for that will be very high. If it gets to the point where whoever Boris Johnson's new chief whip is comes in and says, boss, we don't have the numbers, numbers. Yeah. you could fall tomorrow, whether that would cause him to change course. So mm. I think procedurally it's difficult, but politically there's a lot of pressure that MPs, that MPs can put on the Prime bring. Minister. Yeah. And it'd be all a question of timing. So, yeah, it will be very interesting to see how it plays <laughs> okay, out. OK, Sonia, well, let's talk a little bit about that, but the, the Boris resistance front uh, inside the Tory party. So there's been, a, you know, we've, we've seen this a, a string of quite high profile, resi or at least announcements of resignations over the last few days. Philip Hammond, David Gork, Rory Stewart, Alan Duncan. Um, and of course, we don't know how active Theresa May will be on the on the back benches, do we? Now, once they've joined forces with the likes of Dominic Grieve and Nick Bowles and, and the other Conservative 
conservative backbenchers who've been fighting a, a no fighting no deal for, for for months now that starts to constitute a very serious movement doesn't it i mean what what do you think his approach will be uh, to the to the sort of the, the 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 soft wing of the tory party well, I think he's going to have to try and do things to get them on side, uh, show that he's kind of serious about making some tweaks to the deal, uh, trying to get that through, because he's, you know, if he goes in really gung-ho, all guns blazing, which I don't think he's going to around no deal, sort of this side of the summer, I mean, they, you know, there's a real danger that they might just walk at that point from supporting a Boris Johnson government, which is why I think we will we will start to see a shift in tone going mm. forwards. And so, um, you know, I think, yeah, that, that threat is very real. I think the, the key crunch question is, I mean, I think Joe is right that there's this question of political pressure applied to Boris from behind the scenes. And I think, you know, what's quite interesting is Boris Johnson may have the ERG more naturally on side now, but these rebels, the kind of moderate wing of the Tory party, might sort of almost become like the ERG were to Theresa May. Exactly. So there will be behind the scenes pressure and behind the scenes conversation. The key thing, I think, is when it comes down to crunch point, which is there is one surefire procedural way of stopping uh, a no-deal Brexit. And that's a vote of no confidence in the government, uh, which would probably be called by the opposition. And, I mean, I don't think you're going to see... There will be no prospect of moderate Tories, I think, supporting that until it really comes down to crunch point. Now, if that was the only way of stopping no-deal... And then there is a question, how far would Tory moderates go? And would they vote for something that might potentially pave the way for a Jeremy Corbyn-led government. Um, And I think potentially, I mean, Philip Hammond has sort of hinted that, yes, he might go that far. But then we had David Gork on the radio this morning saying, I would never do that. But then Mm. he would say that at this point in some ways, wouldn't he? So I think that is the really, you know, how far are moderate Tory rebels prepared to go to stop No Deal? And how far is that awkward squad prepared to go is a really, really key question. And I think there's going to be a lot of attention on that over the next few weeks and months. Um, Because, you know, you've got people like Amber Rudd, for example, who a lot of us might have thought, well, she will fit into that awkward squad. I mean, there's no way that she would let no deal go through actually saying, well, maybe it does still need to be on the table in the last couple of weeks. And Mm. so, you know, I think there, there, there is a chance that some moderate Tories will sort of if, if Boris Johnson makes overtures towards them, will certainly give him some time and space uh, to try and uh, get a deal through. Okay, All right. So um, we're talking deal, new deal in or something, at least a tweaked deal in um, Brussels. Uh, Before we move on to what's actually possible there, Jennifer, just a quick word, if you you wouldn't mind, about what Joe alluded to earlier about the sort of the changing of the guard in Brussels, too. Um, So Ursula von der Leyen, von der Leyen was narrowly approved, as we saw earlier this month as the new president of the European Commission. Uh, Brussels is presumably going to be quite preoccupied with the process of forming the new executive team around her. Um, How is that going to play out? What's the impact of that going to be on uh, Johnson and the Johnson team's chances of of actually getting anything at all out of of Brussels in terms of of tweaks to the deal or the political, political declaration or whatever? 
Well, I think the the Brussels Brexit process is now has its established track and all the key players, or most of them anyway, remain in place. Certainly Michel Barnier at the Commission and then uh, key MEPs at the European Parliament. But but yes, you're absolutely right. There is a that broader changing of the guard in the EU. And uh, we are going to see Ursula von der Leyen take office on the 1st of November, which is the, the day after Britain is, is due to leave the EU. So I think as we as we see the, 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 the UK Brexit crisis build, in, in parallel in, in the EU will also be this process of swearing in the new commissioners. They'll all have to pass through your European parliamentary hearings in September. That's likely to take a lot of focus from the new commission president. And it's generally expected in Brussels that she'll take something of a back seat. She won't be in office during October when there's an EU summit in the middle of the month where Prime Minister Boris Johnson presumably would meet other EU leaders um, and that would be a potentially key moment for Brexit. She, she, she's likely to be around the table there, but she's not expected to, to play a, a massive role because, of course, she's got her own agenda. She wants to, she's got big plans for her first 100 days. She's promised a Green New Deal uh, within her first few months of taking office. And the, the sense is that's going to be her priority rather than delving into Brexit, where there are already people, Barnier notably, of, of course, who has the, the that task to carry out. So I'm sure she'll be involved, but I don't think it will be um, I think she won't want to necessarily dive into the to what, to the what could be the Brexit crisis. Yeah. Okay, um, Joe. I mean, so so the, basically, the Brussels the EU twenty seven team remains as is. Uh, but if uh, Johnson's serious about renegotiating the withdrawal agreement or bits of it, then presumably one of his first steps is going to be replace the current chief negotiator, isn't it, Ollie Robbins? Um, any thoughts about how he'll set about that, where he might look, and I suppose whether it's going to make the slightest difference? Yeah, so this gets to you know one of the really interesting questions of who's going to be in the cabinet, and then also how is Boris Johnson going to const- construct number 10? What kind of model will he go for? So Theresa May um, originally, if you remember, had her two very strong chiefs of staff, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, and ran almost everything through them. And it wasn't until after they left that Ollie Robbins kind of got this position of the Prime Minister's chief Brexit advice, you know, even yeah. though in practice he was doing it before, the role became so much more important without these kind of more political chiefs of staff there. We don't know what kind of Prime Minister Boris Johnson's going to be? Is he going to be quite hands-off? Will he have a point Brexit person in number 10, a political appointment, who will then be left to kind of liaise with the civil service more in that kind of model? Um, So it will be really, really interesting to see the extent to which it's a political appointment that does a lot of the heavy lifting on Brexit, or whether they rely a lot on this Europe advisor role um, in the cabinet office. Um, will it make a difference which option he goes for? I mean, in part, yes, but as we know from Theresa May, the kind of part, the big reason we've ended up where we are with the current withdrawal agreement is not necessarily because of different personalities on the UK side, but because the EU have said yes. this is the deal, it's the deal. There's yeah, not yes. much on the table, yeah, so yes. I think dictated can... by the by the by Britain by Theresa May's red lines. Precisely, exactly. So I think. Um, the kind of the top level political choices will matter a lot 
you know, whether there's a big kind of change from what Boris Johnson has said in the campaign. Does he have new political red lines? But personalities, I mean, I'm sure they will matter, the kind of uh, how the relationship with Brussels is built. But fundamentally, it's the kind of big political positions that will determine most about where the withdrawal agreement goes, not which official or special advisor uh, is sat on the other side of the table. OK, Sonia, is it, does that, do you agree with that? I mean, uh, Joe mentioned there, obviously, that the, the cabinet's going to be an absolutely crucial set of decisions uh, for Johnson's state. Now, obviously, we're, we're sort of a slightly hostages to fortune here because by, by this time tomorrow, many of those appointments will probably have been made. But could you, do you just want to reflect for a little bit on, on, on you know, what signals will he try uh, to send, at least, do you think? I mean, and is he, mm. is he going to try and be serious about, about really uniting the party? I think he has to be serious about uniting the party because I think if he isn't, he could be looking at a very short premiership. And I think this is sort of you know, the paradox of Boris Johnson in some way. And we saw that in the speech that he gave when he was announced as, as winner of the contest and you know, mm. prime minister-elect of the UK. He gave quite, you know, it was a very Bo- Boris Johnson sort of toned speech. There were jokes in it, asking the audience, you know, do I look daunted to you oh, sort yeah. of thing? It yeah. was a very sort of classic Boris Johnson in tone, not really the tone we're kind of used to coming from. You know Britain's top politician, um, but so I think you know the, the, the paradox is, is that, that that's his sort of the tone he's adopted. But he's going to have to get pretty serious about um, governing and trying to get Brexit done. The sort of time for just kind of saying, "Oh well, we did a moon landing. Surely we can, you know, get our heads around this as a human race." Is, is sort of feels a bit over actually. Um, so I think it's going to be difficult for him. I think he's going to have to try and unite the party. Obviously, he will do things like promote prominent. Brexiteers who've backed him. So, you know, people are talking about people like Ian Duncan Smith Mm. might be brought back. I'm sure Michael Fallon is hoping for something. Um, uh, You know, people already in the cabinet who supported him, like Priti Patel, Mm. have kind of been uh, tipped for a top job. But I think, you know, there are are absolutely going to be people that, that walk and have made it very clear that it's their intention to do so. But he will have to... I think, bring in sort of the the Amber Rudds and mm. the Nicky Morgans of this world who might kind of reach out to him and say, yes, we're willing to serve, um, we would serve you. Because if not, it's going to be very, very difficult for him to keep the bulk of Tory moderates mm. on side. Mm. So I, mean, he I faces think he's, exactly he's constrained this, by reality. He does face exactly the same problem as Theresa May. Though, I think that's right. That, I mean, who, she, who tried to keep this sort of yeah. pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit... Yeah. balance in the cabinet throughout. Yeah, and so, you know, Boris Johnson has lost the luxury now of being able to say what he wants and for it to be seen as an appeal. You know, mm. it, it basically, he's lost the luxury of having the time and space to appeal to Tory members. He's going to be prime minister from tomorrow. He actually has to try and govern the country yeah. now. So it's going to get quite sort of, it's going to get much um, more tricky for him, um, I think. Very quickly. OK, Jennifer. Um, so what's actually possible then? Um, the, the questions of renegotiation and, of course, the dreaded backstop, which you mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, both Boris Johnson and uh, Jeremy Hunt uh, went very hard on this, didn't they, during the whole sort of leadership election campaign? They said it was going to have to be the backstop was going to be ripped out of the withdrawal agreement altogether. Now, I mean, obviously, that's that that can't happen, as you said. But what actually is conceivable from the EU's perspective? What what might uh, the new prime minister be able to come back with from Brussels and say uh, to the House of Commons, "Look, I've I've got something." 
Well, I, I do think it is. I and mean, as you, you said, it's, it's, in, it's for me, it's inconceivable to imagine the EU would now give in on the backstop because it's become such a, a red line. Mm. And I think for an EU that's currently negotiating a, a bare bones trade deal with, with Donald Trump to give in on something that is so fundamental to EU interests would send such a, a damaging message to the likes of Trump and to other uh, countries the EU mm. is negotiating with and also it would be really damaging for the EU's own internal cohesion to suggest that an outgoing member state would ultimately be able to, an outgoing member state would ultimately have the, the veto on on something that is very important for a small member state and the EU ultimately is made up of small member states. So I think they will they will really stand behind the backstop but what we can expect to see a bit more of if Boris Johnson wants to play that game is more along the lines of how do you make sure the backstop never comes into force? Mm. And the EU's already done a fair amount on this. And certainly the view of EU officials is that they feel they've they've strained every sinew to help Theresa May demonstrate that nobody wants the backstop, that it really is a last resort arrangement to avoid a hard border. And 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 that was worked out through a series of um, of letters and agreements over the course of last December and March when Theresa May was trying to get this withdrawal agreement through Parliament and that the most elaborate version we saw came in March with the so-called Strasbourg Agreement, so a protocol agreed between May and Juncker. And there's a feeling on the EU side that that was never very much appreciated in in the House of Commons because immediately it became a hostage to fortune, if you remember, with uh, the question of, for Geoffrey Cox, was there a unilateral exit from the backstop or not? And when Geoffrey Cox confirmed there wasn't, then the whole um, that whole sort of protocol um, just seemed to, really. to disappear. Yeah. Mm. But for, from the EU point of view, it's still there. They feel it hasn't been banked. And there's a feeling that they could do more work along those lines. So what is that? That's sort of setting out more timetables for, for when you when you have certain negotiations on, on getting rid of the backstop, more earnest language about using best endeavours to really try not very hard not to have a backstop. But it still is. Um, but the backstop is still there. So the big question for the EU is, is, Prime Minister Boris Johnson going to play this game? Is he is he is he ready to accept um, the backstop with with some some really cosmetic changes? Um, and they're they're rather sceptical that he will, yeah, he but will. Yeah. but they haven't they haven't met him yet. So I think there's also a certain amount of withholding judgment and seeing whether his his public campaign rhetoric actually matches what he will try to do once he is Prime Minister. Okay. Um... Joe, uh, assuming that, 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 that the EU, as Jennifer says, does make some move towards uh, that to sort of reassuring, further reassuring moves on and statements on the backstop. I mean, is that ever going to be enough for the other half of Johnson's internal Tory opposition? We talked earlier about the moderates, but, the, you know, the, the ERG group. Um, I mean, it, it, surely one of his biggest problems is, is that he's never going to be able to keep both halves of his ever-shrinking majority happy, is he? I mean, if you take the ERG at face value, and particularly the kind of the harder-line ERG members within it, then no, it doesn't stand a chance. They have been very clear they want the whole bit of the backstop junked. They won't accept any tweaks, etc., etc. So they have been very, very hard line on it. But I think you also have to, um, if you think back to the high point for Theresa May's deal in Parliament, 29th of March, she put forward just the withdrawal agreement, two MPs, 
And she got Boris Johnson voting for it. She got Jacob Rees-Mogg voting for it. There were, I think, just 15 hardline ERG Hmm. MPs who didn't vote for it. So can those 15 be won over with small tweaks and adjustments? Could they be won over if, for example, Geoffrey Cox changed his advice and said this new tweak has actually... um, made unilateral exit more likely. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people saw the advice that he wrote in March and thought he could have written that in a much more positive way if he'd wanted to, and it was quite a damning Mm. piece of advice. So is there a way that that kind of tweet can win? Massaged a little bit. Exactly. Can Can you win these additional 15 over? But the other big question, I think, for Boris Johnson and the other group that he will be thinking about is Labour backbenchers. Mm. So... As the Labour Party shifts their position towards a second referendum, there have already been, what was it, 25, 26 Labour backbenchers who wrote to the leader, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, to say, we don't like this move. People are already saying, actually, we probably would have voted for that deal if we if we got another chance. So does that movement, kind of slight tweaks of the deal, plus... Labour moving more and more to be second referendum, the prospect of an election, the Brexit party mean Mm. that the one group really that never came through for Theresa May, that she spent all of the first quarter of this year trying to court, which was, you know, the the backbenchers that would come in, you know, your Lisa Nandys, for example, is held up as one of the the big examples. Can she, can Boris Johnson unlock that and Mm. get those votes? Now, I think the big challenge will be it's Boris Johnson. Mm. It's probably <laughs> easier for them to have voted for Theresa May's deal than it but, will be to vote for Boris Johnson's Brexit. Because one of the re- one of the reasons for that, of course, is that they're not just voting for the withdrawal agreement; they're voting in, you know, for us to leave, and then the f- then the negotiations happen about the final um, mm. agreement with the EU, what the final trade agreement, and you know who who is in that top job for those neg- negotiations is really really important. And Labour MPs, I think, quite rightly, a lot of them wouldn't have trusted the guarantees that Theresa May gave, not even necessarily because of an issue of character, but because she's got her own party to worry about, and you know, are these guarantees she's offering on employment rights for example really going to hold firm I think they'd take a look at Boris Johnson mm. though and feel even less likely to, to trust him so that is the big challenge big, of Boris question. Johnson in winning over Labour MPs. Um, Sonia what about also the other question that's interesting I think um, in that context is, is is what about the prospect of, of sort of cross-party options uh, mm. in Parliament um, I mean Keir Starmer, Labour's Keir Starmer, has said he'll be looking to build a sort of a cross-party alliance with those Conservative moderates, the Lib Dems, the SNP, to block any attempt to, to leave mm. without a Interesting deal. that's coming I from mean, Keir Starmer, yeah, not I Jeremy mean, Corbyn, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. Mm. Uh, yes, very telling. Uh, but, I mean, how, what, are, what are the chances of that coming to fruition, do you um, think? So I think it depends on how far Boris Johnson takes things. So I think a, a cross-party coalition to stop No Deal does have a chance of succeeding if we get to like I mean it will be really really down to the wire though mm. but if we get if we get into like mid October there's no deal and Boris Johnson is like this is it guys we're leaving the European Union without a deal 
at that moment of crisis, I think there is a chance a, a cross-party coalition would come together in sufficient numbers to vote against the government, whether it's through a no-confidence votion or whether John Burkow, mm. who said that he will sort of be quite permissive in terms of what he allows MPs to do in terms of holding the government to account, whether there's some other mechanism for doing that. But there I think it stops. Uh, I, I don't rate the chances of a cross-party coalition in sort of... I don't know, delivering some other form of Brexit, yeah. even, you know, and I'm a supporter of the idea of another referendum. I think from a principled uh, perspective, it's really important. But on a practical level, it's even hard to see how a cross-party coalition would agree on the terms of a referendum. What question are you putting to the public? How do you keep that governing coalition mm. together for the length of time it would require to pass legislation for a referendum? And the thing about us is that we are a two-party majoritarian system. We're not, there's no mechanism for, for government that, yeah, for, yeah. For, for, for a sort of really for a national uh, yeah. government at this in this day and age and it's very you know all everything in parliament the whipping system mm. etc it's all very heavily based around um, the party system the two-party system it's very difficult to see how a cross-party coalition could hold really to do anything rather than to try and block no deal yeah and if I very quickly I yes. think that was one of the really interesting things we saw with the Labour cross-party talks that when that came out, a lot of people in European capitals who are used to a much more consensual kind of coalition building type of politics sat back and thought, God, finally the Brits will fix it. <laughs> now we've finally got there. And everyone here went, this is a farce, it's never going to work because happen. it's just yeah. not how our politics works. Yeah. OK, uh, Jennifer, uh, I mean, Brussels, Brussels knows Boris uh, doesn't it? I mean, how much is that going to be a factor? How much will the EU's past experience of him as, you know, as pretty sort of much the inventor of Euromyth journalism, um, and I guess to a lesser extent as, as Mayor of London and even as Foreign Minister, how much is that going to condition uh, uh, the 27's response to him when he when he takes office? Well, just on one point, as of, of Boris Johnson as the inventor of the Euromyth, I would actually say he was the perfecter rather than okay. the inventor of the Euromyth because, because he was here as the Daily Telegraph's European community, as it then was, correspondent between 1989 and 1994. And what he was really doing were, was what papers like The Sun and The Daily Mail had been doing for years, coming up with these extravagant stories of how EU regulations by these dastardly Brussels bureaucrats were trying to strangle sort of ancient British uh, traditions, often often based on maybe a grain of truth or sometimes not at all and, and sometimes completely spurious. But, but Boris Johnson really perfected this. And because he was working for basically what was the in-house paper for the Conservative Party at a time when the Conservative Party were going through the, their own um, agonies over the Maastricht Treaty in, in the John Major years, it really, it really had an impact. And because of Boris Johnson's subsequent position, we've come to think of him as the inventor of the Euromyth. And in a sense, there's a bit of mythology around that and but of course we continue to think of him in that way because he continues to come out with these in incredible um stories. stories and we saw that yeah. only last week <laughs> when he was brandishing a kipper at one of the hustings event um and it later well it very quickly transpired that um it was British rules actually that governed how that how kippers are transported so but to come back to your to your question so I mean Brussels does know Boris Johnson as the the purveyor of these of these stories, you know, some, summed up just today by a European commissioner for for health and sa food safety standards. Uh, he was talking on the the Kipper story. He, he sums up Boris Johnson as someone who's purveying cheap promises, simplified visions, 
blatantly evident incorrect statements. And so there's some very, you know, the, the Brussels EU, and EU officials knows Boris Johnson very well, and he's seen as this very bombastic figure. In a sense, he's the anti-EU. He, you know, whereas Boris Johnson is is bombastic. He exaggerates. He doesn't care about detail or accuracy. Whereas on the one hand, you have the EU, which is this legal construction where everyone speaks very carefully, very precisely, where nothing ever gets done without having a high-level expert working group and then six months of reflection. So there's a real um, gulf in, in the way Boris Johnson works versus the way the European Union works. And I think that that tells us how the European Union will respond to Boris Johnson. It will respond in the same way that it responded to Theresa May, that, um, that it will seek to defend its interests based on rules, following discussions among 27 member states and going through the whole EU pr process. So we're not going to see any changes in the way the EU responds to Boris Johnson and the fact that he's 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 promising that he's got optimism and energy. I mean, that's, it's really not going to cut it. It really does come down for the EU, you know, what are, what are the laws and how will the EU defend its own interests? So, so again, we're on, on very familiar territory. Okay, uh, we're beginning to run out of time. I just want to run round, uh, quickly round the table, a, bit, a little bit of um, crystal ball gazing. Um, Joe, uh, I mean, how long can can he realistically walk this this tightrope? Then are we looking at are we looking at a choice now between sort of crashing out without a deal and a, a, a delay and fresh elections? Are there other possibilities? Is the is Theresa May's deal definitively dead? No, I don't think so. I mean, look, there's the citizens' rights part of the deal, the financial settlement, the transition, uh, and then the backstop. I mean, I think of the kind of um, the three key first parts. I'm not sure. I mean, there's people who don't like bits of them, but I think that's pretty much the deal. Mm. I think that you can't rule out the possibility of um, Boris Johnson government bringing back a deal at the very, very last minute, getting a vote in Parliament that could support it, and then there being an extension which will be branded as a technical extension. You know, we really are still leaving, um, but a bit more time to get the legislation through, which will be an extremely difficult task but i don't think you can rule that out just yet okay sonia uh most likely sort of boris brexit outcome now um so i either think um i do think there's a chance of what joe's just outlined happening and i suspect my prediction will be that that is the sort of strategy that boris tacks to um simply because otherwise it's basically no deal so um and i think you know it, if he resigns himself to only getting some quite cosmetic changes to the EU. But if he takes on the challenge of rebranding those cosmetic changes as something bigger to the ERG, if he succeeds in bringing some Labour MPs on board, there are a lot of ifs here. Yeah. Um, then possibly, you know, I, I, you, again, you, you just can't discount it as a possibility because in some ways it's kind of, it, it would be the sensible route for Boris Johnson as Prime Minister to take. But, you know, there were a lot of ifs and, um, you know, that stuff may not come to pass. It may not even be Boris Johnson's preferred strategy. He may just, he, you know, he may just get, sort of go to the That's EU. Absolutely. I mean, we don't have a clue about what his strategy is. No, exactly. Is, There's been, you know, we, we just don't know. There's been people saying different things about what his strategy is from the Boris camp. And Boris Johnson, we know, is a man who um, changes his mind with the wind, you know, depending on what suits the pun he wants to make that day or his political career. He's the one who 
the man who wrote two columns, uh, you know, yeah. one for and against Brexit, because he hadn't quite decided which one he was going to go for when it came to crunch time, you know, in the run up to the 2016 referendum. So it's, you know, it, it's all up in the air what strategy is going to go for. But I do think if he goes for the kind of quite hard line, making an impossible set of demands from the EU um, and then says, right, that's it, guys, we've got to walk away from this. Uh, we are looking at a general election. OK, uh, Jennifer, just on that on, on, on that point then of, uh, you know, assuming let's assume for the moment that he does come back with um, with something he might legitimately or not be able to call um, a, a new deal. Uh, I mean, a lot of this is going to uh, hang on whether the EU 27 are prepared uh, to grant a further extension, uh, isn't it? I mean, and there's quite a few of the EU member states who now seem to think that no deal is probably now the most likely scenario. Um, I mean, when when it really comes down to it, will they, uh, how many of them are prepared to allow that to happen? I think when it actually comes to the crunch, um, we'll, it could be very few. I mean, my my basic assumption is that the EU will do everything it can to avoid a no deal and that there will always the cautious voices tend to prevail but that said i mean you you do find people here in this town making the argument that well we we gave the brits time in, in april we asked them not to waste it and and look what they've gone and done for the last few months and there has been a hardening of the position but that said i mean that kind of hardening has taken place without any actual proposal to extend brexit i mean it's it's all a, a bit unreal and I think when we get to the autumn, when we're getting very close um, to to a potential crash out exit, then I think that will be the real test of, as to whether the EU are ready to countenance no deal. I think I think that for the bottom the bottom line is they will because they won't move on the backstop. But I still think they they will do everything they can to avoid it. But for but for everyone on the EU side, there's a lot of unpredictability about Boris Johnson. I mean, as, as Sonia was saying, he he is the the, the man who wrote two letters about his. Um, his view on the referendum and and the EU side are tra- still trying to suss him out. You know, is is he someone who is going to to stick to his position? Is he going to suddenly tack and and try to do this enormous political somersault, and and then rebrand the deal and and possibly rebrand an extension as in order to in order to get some kind of face saving agreement? And and nobody knows. So. Um, so I think that the bottom line for the EU is it's it's very much a sort of waiting for Boris Johnson to come to Brussels and very much waiting to see what he's actually going to do. Absolutely. OK, well, yeah, well, that I think that's pretty much sums it up, really. Nobody knows. Um, the only thing we can say with any certainty is that there is very little certainty at all. That's it uh, then for this um, heartening episode. My thanks to Sonia, Jennifer and Joe. Uh, Brexit means we'll be taking a very short August break, but we'll be back with a fresh dose of Brexit bedlam in very early September. Uh, please subscribe, review on your favourite podcatchers, join the discussion on Twitter. Uh, you just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next time then, I'm John Henley. The producer, I believe for the last time, so farewell, uh, was Simon Barnard. It's been great. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.